Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Our Father, we come again this morning to offer our praises and glory to you, our Father Abba, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, particularly as we commemorate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection through this communion, the emblem of the greatest love ever in universe history, the love of God our Father, and the love of Jesus in sacrificing himself and then rising again from the dead for us. Touch lives today, minister to us, in a special way, Holy Spirit, move, we pray, and speak your word to our hearts. And we just pray, God, that this morning you touch lives in the ministry of your word and particularly in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Father. In the name of Jesus, lives would be touched, people would be saved, people backsliders would be brought back, and Father, people would be healed and delivered. In Jesus' name, we still believe. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. All praise to you, Father, in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen and Amen. Give the Lord a clap offering. I want to continue on what we talk about, a very relevant message in this present crisis. A little different, I moved, and I'll come back to what I began the last Sunday. But just let me remind you, a lot of uh, passages uh, today, and I don't just speak opinion, I just want to uh, go in with the Word of God, and it is basically the word interprets itself. And if you don't get all of this, please remember to check in with our website. All of the Bible references would be there. I just want you to go in and do this, particularly with the references that would be available. But my subject this morning must needs go. And this comes from John chapter 4 and verse 4. This is the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what it says. And he must needs go through Samaria, must, needs, go, that is a word of necessity. And this is simply a powerful word that tells us of divine necessity. There's many reasons why he shouldn't go, particularly to this place called Samaria. And yet, this is a word he uses, the passage the Holy Spirit uses, must, needs go. Must is a very strong word. It's imperative, a strong word to say he must. There's no two ways about it. And the way you look at it is the words and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ stressing must. If you were to take John chapter 3 and verse 7, the word to Nicodemus, you must be born again. In this passage, chapter 4, and what we read in verse 4, must needs go. When you turn to John chapter 4, verse 24, those that worship the Father must, must, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. John chapter 12 and verse 20, 34 simply says, He must rise again. And this is a must, no two ways about it. So this is a divine imperative, a divine obligation, and a divine necessity. So looking at this passage, we come to realization that 
It was a tryst with a woman. Three things about her rubs the wrong way. She was number one a Samarite. Uh, uh, basically, uh, she was not Jewish. Secondly, you find she, uh, she was a Samaritan. Secondly, she was a woman. And thirdly, she had really a lot of things that would not be on her side, particularly when it comes to immorality. So that being said, there is a passage that tells us Jesus must go even though that wasn't necessary in the eyes of many people. But it's a case that he must to be able to touch lives. When you look at chapter 4 and verse 5 of John, you find the Lord Jesus Christ meets with a woman. And that is in the city of Samaria in verse 7. It's particularly mentioned uh, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. So she was going about her daily business. A woman of Samaria, no name there. What you find is this woman doesn't come searching for the Lord Jesus. She was minding her business. She was the other side of the town, in another place, in a different environment, a different culture, different, altogether different sense of whatever she was doing, very much away from what the Lord Jesus Christ was used to. But when you compare her, you're going to find in John chapter 3 and verse 9, there's a passage, uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's talk about this one. He's Nicodemus. The passage earlier to this, in chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Number one, he was a man who was a Pharisee, strict, Number two, he was a man who was a ruler, and he was a Sanhedrin member, and he was a learned man. But here's a man who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ at night, inquiring, desiring, and the Lord Jesus said, you must be born again. He didn't grasp it, but later on you find that he was a disciple later on, or particularly during the time of that he and Joseph Arimathea helped by the place where Jesus could be buried. But here's a man who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ at night on his own volition. But when you check chapter 4, the woman did not come. She did not have any idea or were even inquiring about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to her. You talk about being in the wrong place, wrong time. Here is this passage telling us Jesus must go to Samaria. But do you know where you're, what you're getting into? When you turn to John chapter 4 and verse one, 9, you get an idea what it means. Here's the woman saying to the Lord Jesus, How is it? How come? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, who am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews, for the Jews, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? There was no love lost between the two. So how is it that you come over, cross to the other side, and you come to me a woman? You don't even look at us. You don't even meet with us. You don't drink the same cup or from the same well. There's a story behind, particularly about the Samaritans. They're different from Jewish. In other words, they were basically a little bit of counterfeit. But they're akin to the Jews in so many ways. They have one God, a patriarch. They have one uh, temple. 
and one place. Unfortunately for them, they only believe in the Lord, the first five books of, the Mo of Moses' Torah. They don't believe in the prophets, neither the major or the minor, or even the history. So they believe that, and they rec also recognize that the place where they are, Gerizim, was the right place. Of course, at one time, that was the place in the Old Testament, but God has moved from there. He's moved to Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. So they are stuck to that passage, their culture, their own way of thinking. And when you look at the situation, the Jews too didn't mind, I didn't care for them. They were so different. A little bit of history you find. The nation was undivided. The last king was the second king, Saul, but after him came Rehoboam, and the nation was divided because of unwise choice he made. And there was a rascal by the name of Jeroboam who basically broke rank from the main uh, Judah and started his own, and that is called the Northern Kingdom, Kingdom or Israel. When you look at it, there's a southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom called Israel. Jeroboam started it just in case he felt his people were going, would ever go down to Jerusalem, particularly religion will draw them to back home. He decided to build a temple, and you can see that in the Bible. He built one in Dan. There is historical evidence of why he built, because of the past, and Bethel. Of course we know about Bethel. So the closer in the boundary, yet not closing, but a little around, skirting around, he built this. And what he find is he didn't want people to go into Jerusalem to worship. Much later you find Omri's son Ahab, basically is capital in Samaria now of the northern kingdom. So he moves the temple into Samaria and then it's moved out. So in Samaria he dedicates it because of his wife, uh, his his father-in-law was a worshiper and a king and also a priest of Baal. He builds a temple in Samaria unto Baal. So you can understand the Samaria and all of this being there. It was a mix. But that's not all. You're going to find in the midst of it there were skirmishes, there were battles, there was a lot of ill feeling. But let's just pause to just, I want to explain that in the first place we need to understand fights about the land in the Old Testament is carried over because of basically two children. And this is not only in terms of Abraham's children, but also of Isaac's children. But let me just remind you right off the bat that when you look into the Word of God, you find the land belongs to Abraham and his descendants in the natural, in the physical sense. So when you look at it, Genesis, uh, Abraham, you find Abraham when God gave his promises in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2, he did not have any children. But the promises were specific. Now the Lord said unto Abraham, get thee. And so he was from the great city of civilization then of Mesopotamia. But of course an idol worshipping country. And he said, get out from your kindred, from your father's house, in the land that I will show you. And verse 2 goes on to say, I will make thee a great nation, number one. I will bless you, make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. So this is very important. Why? And verse 3 explains, I will bless them that bless you, curse them that curse you, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So in you shall all the families be blessed. This is the reason. As yet he did not have a heir. When you come to chapter 15, 
And particularly when you go to verse 18 of Genesis, you're finding God gives this covenant and he gives you the specification. The same day God made a covenant with Abraham, unto, this, unto your seed will I give this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, which is the land of Israel. So when you look at this passage, when you turn to chapter 16, is the first son being born. And then, of course, you're going to find God blesses uh, basically Hagar's son. When you come to chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, Isaac is not yet born. Now, I want you to understand the specifics of God's word, even though Isaac is not born. So when you turn to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 19, I want you to understand the specificity of this. And God said, Sarah, not Hagar, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. So it's very specific and to his seed after him. So if you were to take, what about Ishmael? In verse 20, you will hear God saying with regard to Ishmael. So in chapter 17 and verse 20, here is what God's saying. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, behold, I have blessed him, I have blessed him, I have blessed him. And I will make him fruitful and multiply exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. So obviously, the Arabic nations, and you find the all-rich countries, and all of this is blessed. And so I want you to understand both the children of Abraham are blessed, and there are blessings of Ishmael, but understand the specific blessing to Isaac. When you look at it, it's again reiterated in Genesis chapter 22 and verse uh, 18. This is again specific. And thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I want you to underline all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is the reason. Not just for itself. I'm going to make you top cat, a Brahmin there, the top cast, the top of it. No, that the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. What you find is Abraham walked the length and breadth of the land. He did not have a place to call his own. The first place he got was he purchased from the sons of earth. So in chapter 20, uh, 24, I believe, you're going to find in verse 3, he's basically going to the children of earth and says, I'm a sojourner, I'm a stranger, but I ask of you if you would give me a land. And of course, that was the land in which he buried Sarah, called Mishpalam, the first land ever. What you're going to find is an amazing way God reiterates the promise to Abraham's seed, Isaac, to Jacob, and on and on until he basically reconfirms it to David. And you can read that in Psalm chapter 89, verse 33, verse 34, verse 35, verse 36, verse 37. This is an everlasting covenant. It's very specific. It is very real. And we need to recognize that is the way God. So he has blessed Ishmael. He has blessed Isaac. He has blessed Esau. And he is blessed Jacob, but Jacob comes from this line of Isaac. But I want us to realize 
This word is reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30 and verse 11. And so Moses writes in the last book, and this is how he writes. He says, this is what it is, even though they sin, I will disperse them through the nations, and yet a remnant will I bring back, which he kept his promise. Now, there are five L that you must remember, very important. Otherwise, you miss it altogether. All of them start with L, and I want you to know number one is land. The fight is all about the land. So number one, L is the land. Number two is the law if you have to keep the land. So God gave the Old Testament people law that tells you how to follow the Lord. That is very important. It's called the Mosaic law. And then again, confirmed by the prophets. The third L is loyalty. They need to stick very close to God. It depends on their, what is called walking with God. That is how important it is. You disobey, you're out. You'll be punished. So not only the land, not only the law, not only the fact that you have to have what is called a sense of loyalty, strongly emphasized, and Deuteronomy again and again. What is the word Deuteronomy? I repeat again, don't forget this. Follow the Lord, follow the Lord, follow the Lord. Number four, you will have a legacy. And the legacy simply is, I will bless the nations through you. But God much later said, you have become a byword. Every time they mention about you, basically they think, I'm cursed. You should be a blessing. That's the legacy that the nations of the world would be blessed through you. And number four, number five is simply all of this land, the law, the loyalty, and the legacy should equal to that they would come to know the Messiah. That is the finality. So the land... Depends on the Lord, depends on the loyalty, depends on the legacy, and depends on the Messiah, the Lord. These are five specifics. That being said, I want you to understand, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 onwards, he talks about blessing in the land, blessing in your going out, blessing in your field, blessing in everything. But chapter 15, all the way to the end of chapter 29, if you disobey, I will do this, I will do this. You won't be the head, you'll be the tail. You won't be running and being con conquering, you will be conquered. And so it goes on and on and on and on and on. Why? It's a covenant that he made and yet, there's no covenant that says you're eternally saved. You can do what you want. If that's the case, you'll have people like Judas laughing in heaven saying, wow, I'm in heaven. I'm an eternal covenant because of Abraham. Or the high priest would say, yes, I'm in heaven too. Or the likes of Hitler and all the other nonsense say, I'm in heaven because Jesus died for me. That's not true. You have to be closely akin and close to walk with God. In the Old Testament as in the New Testament. I will tell you, nations were disappeared because of a disobedience. You say, excuse me, how could that be possible? Hold it, just a thought. 
seven churches the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to, and I'm talking about New Testament. Where are those seven churches? Majority of them are in Turkey. There are not many Christians. Even though Saudi had large numbers and all of the Middle East had large numbers, very few. Where did they go? The same way that the northern tribe disappeared. So don't tell me for eternal. You say, Jesus died for me like Abraham is, owes me that favor. Jesus Christ owes you no favor. You've got to walk with God. Oh, yes, God has made a permanent covenant with us called the new covenant. That doesn't mean I can bite the hands of God and curse him and still say, ah, thank you. Jesus brought saved me eternally. So keep that in mind. But I want you to understand there was something called punishment for the people of Israel. That comes in the form of what is called captivity. And so God was telling prophets, Prophets after prophets would come and say, please, please, please. Remember the two nations now, the northern kingdom under Jeroboam and the southern kingdom, which continues the legacy of David, the great king. And all of the kings of the south were measured with the yardstick, the litmus test is as David walked before God. In the case of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, there was not one king that was righteous. All of them were rotten. Excuse me. Israel had rotten kings, despite the fact that they were called. Every one of them were rotten kings. So don't tell me one king or one president is greater or the prime minister is greater than the other. No. He has to know God and walk with God. Land, law, loyalty, and then legacy. And number five, must be prepared to meet the Messiah. What is so important is God didn't spare. And so according to the Deuteronomy and the laws in the last book of Torah, the Pentateuch, or the book of Deuteronomy, it came to pass. It is like prophets after prophets pleading with Israel. They had some great prophets. Name a few. Elijah, Elijah, Elisha, and so forth. Till the point you come that God could not take it anymore. He still sent prophets. And when you read the Bible, you'll find the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, particularly chapter 5, verses 11 to verse 17. But he goes on to say, in both, touching both the nation, he says, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously against the Lord. Against me, said the Lord. They have believed the Lord and said, it is not he. Neither shall evil come upon us and go all the way to verse uh, 17. And you find it says, they shall eat the harvest. These people will come and they'll eat the harvest. And understand this. He's very, very clear about it. The book of Amos is a prophet crying out to Israel. It is time for you meet the Lord before it's too late. And the book of Hosea, Hosea talks about it, and particularly when you read the book of Hosea, chapter 4 and verse 6, listen to what he says. He says, they are destroyed because of lack of knowledge, because they have rejected knowledge. They who were called, they who were called to be blessed, to be a blessing, they rejected knowledge, and I will also reject them 
but thou shalt, there shall be no more priest to me, seeing they have forgotten the law of your God, I also have forgotten the children. To make matters worse, he uses the two times the word divorce. I've divorced you. How could that be? In the Christian circle have come people who say, you just walk down the altar, just lift up your hands. Your names are written in the book of the Lamb. No repentance, you can do what you want and say any crazy stuff, believe any nonsense, you're going to be saved. Be very careful. It didn't fall well with the Old Testament and it doesn't fall well in the New Testament if we reject the Lord. What you're going to find is the word of God ultimately comes to pass. Uh, Jeroboam becomes the king. And for 175 years, God gave a space, long-suffering. 175 years of their wickedness. And then comes the Assyrians. They come into the land and totally destroy everything. But that's not all. They took the ten tribes and disperse them. You don't hear about the ten tribes anymore. Excuse me? What about eternal covenant God made? I ask you, what about the law? What about their loyalty? What about their legacy? What about seeking the Messiah? So the land is number one. But when you look at the word of God historically from the book of history, listen to what it says in 2 Kings. Chapter 17, verse 22 to 23. For the children of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. They are exactly like this man. Which they did, they departed not from them. And in verse 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria to this day. Verse 24, who did he bring? In verse 24, and the king of Assyria brought forth men from Babylon, from Kota, and from Ava, and from all these places, instead of the children of Israel, and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So in the midst of all of this, Samaria is the capital. There were the Samar Samaritans, and they basically had their own temple, but they basically intermerged and an economical type, and they basically merged with it, not only in terms of marriages, but also in terms of their religion or in their terms of their faith. There was a lot of compromises. So understand where they are. But now come, this takes place in 721 BC, 175 years after Jeroboam basically did the secession and moved away from the greater tribe and moved ten tribes and called the northern kingdom Israel. 175 years later. Think about it. When you look at the Assyrians, Sennacherib and all the others, they had their eye on Judah, the southern kingdom. But they could not attack it because there was one thing standing against them. God. Why would God bother with Judah? Because there was a godly king called Ezekiah. 
There was a great revival in the time of Hezekiah, and people who were in the northern kingdom before they were displaced began to realize, how can we worship the way that Israel does? We need to go to Judah and worship with God. So there were remnants of particularly the ten tribes because of their love for God and the law of God and the loyalty to God, they began to filter in and move into the southern kingdom called Judah. So, there were the tribe of Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin, and there were one more called the Levites. They had priests. Then that was Judah, but then there were remnants of the other ten coming in because they were desirous and devoted to God, His Word, and the knowledge of His Word, and loyalty to God, they could not stand the types of Jeroboam, and they moved into Jerusalem, into Judah. That was where the temple was in Jerusalem. There was a great revival, and God stayed anything that the Assyrians wanted to do, even though they had an eye on Judah, the southern kingdom. But then comes the 15 years of grace given to Hezekiah. You can read that. In that time, there was a son born to him called Manasseh. If you think about a great father, brought glory to Judah and a lousy brat called Manasseh. He did exactly what Jeroboam did in the northern. He sacrificed his children. He went and built altars and a lot of nonsense. Of course, Solomon did, but not to the extent that Manasseh, till it was puking. God said, I had enough. And then he unleashed the foreign tribes to come in. Then Manasseh repented. God stayed the judgment, but it was not too long. Till Manasseh died, God said, I won't do it because he repented, repented, repented. This is important. Now came other kings, and God measures them, and the litmus test, do they, and will they be like David and Ezekiah? They were not. So you can understand this. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Look at what he says about Israel being a vineyard. He says, now I will sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard is a fruitful hill. But then he goes on to say how it was crushed and how it was broken and they were disobedient. And the Lord Jesus Christ gives these examples in the New Testament. But when you come to verse 13, and as you go further, it becomes very specific. So when you read chapter 5 of Isaiah and verse 13, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let my people go into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up and thirst. And then he goes on to say, I don't have time. They do not know right from wrong, and the evil they do, they think it's right, and the good they need to do, they think that is wrong. They were totally, completely different, and they began to merge and began to mix up, never learning the lessons that took place 135 years ago with another nation called Israel. It went on until finally God said, enough is enough. In the meantime, Jeremiah writes this, and Jeremiah says, please turn around. And then he says, it's too late now. And he names them, the Babylonians are coming. This is what you need to do. Submit to them because God 
is sending the Babylonians to not just hurt you, but turn you around before it's too late. But it is unleashed. You need to submit to them. And of course, the false prophet said, no, he's a false prophet. And the king jailed Jeremiah. It took an Ethiopian eunuch to rescue him just before the attack came in or after the attack from the Babylonians. They hated Jeremiah and one of their so-called prophets said, cannot happen. God made promises eternal. We can live what well, the way we want. And he said, strike this prophet. He's a madman. And the kings were inclined to believe this nonsense. Here was a man crying out, repent before it's too late until he said, forget about repentance now. Submit to the Babylonians. 135 years after the northern kingdom called Israel fell, was carried out by Assyrians and disappeared, now comes the Babylonian. And God calls Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, my servant. The one who becomes the whipping boy to correct the children of Judah. So if you could have it, it's very hard to even imagine. The Babylonians come in and literally ransack, break down the temple, break down the walls. And what they did was they carried the finest and the best of the people of Judah to Babylon. Now I want you to understand the difference between the northern and the southern. You don't hear a word about the northern kingdom. They were idol worshippers and they were mixing and matching with everything. But when you see about the people of Judah carried to Babylon and Jeremiah was very specific. 70 years are determined. You come across Ezekiel now. He's from after it happened. Ezekiel is in the river Chabad in Babylon and speaking and comforting the people of, Israel, of Judah. So this prophet way ahead it happened and here is Ezekiel a prophet that is speaking to the, cap, to the captives that were in Babylon. So here is Ezekiel saying while you are there seek the welfare of that country. Bless them, be fruitful, have children, get jobs, get education. But stay there. Don't be rebellious. No matter what your prophets would tell you. This is the word of the Lord. 70 years. I want you to understand the difference between the people of Judah. Because they were grounded in the word. When they went to Babylon. I'll tell you what they did not have. They did not have the first tale called land. Did you hear? They didn't have the land. In fact, they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And yet they sang praises. While they didn't have land, they kept the second L, law. Number two, they put their heart towards loyalty to God. Number three, there was a a legacy about them. What do you mean legacy? The likes of people from Judah that were taken captives. Let me give you an example. Daniel, for one, 
The three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, people like Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, oh my God, and Queen Esther, their hearts were on fire. They learned the lesson. They obeyed God in a strange land. They did not have a land, but they had the laws in their heart. In fact, Daniel said, I cannot eat this food. My Lord tells me I cannot eat this food. And the man in charge of these five, of these four said, we will give you what you need if you can prove or God can prove that. God came through. God elevated them. God blessed them in a strange land. They were loyal to God, unlike the northern tribe. Why? Because they did not respect the word of God. They had no understanding. But here was Judah. The law was in the prophets. The law was in the temple. They did not have the temple. They did not have the priest. They did not have all of the things they were used to or everything that the temple sacrificed. But they were keeping the law. They were loyal to God. And what was unimaginable, they created a legacy in a strange land. In fact, when it comes to the fifth one, the Lord of the Messiah, Daniel writes about that. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26 and verse 27, he's talking about Messiah and the date. In fact, reading from that comes the Persians, come from there, the wise men, seeking for the one that would be the king, one that would be the prince of peace, walking, trekking all the way from Iran. Because of the legacy, the literature, and because of what Daniel and others taught about the one that would come, the Messiah. I want you to realize something very important. Ezekiel talked about it, and he said, this is what Jeremiah says, and Daniel talks about it, and he said, this is what Jeremiah says, the time for us coming back is near, and he began to talk and pray. In the meantime, there were the Haman and the likes wanted to destroy the seed of Abraham. Because they were faithful, God protected them. Because of keeping the law, because they were loyal, because they had a legacy, and because they were seeking the Lord and waiting for the Messiah. And when 70 years came to pass, God kept his word. Now, when they're away for 70 years, remember the northern tribe in Samaria? They filtered into Israel, so they were totally mixed up. And now they have built what would be a temple in Mount Gerizim because... Gerizim is mentioned in the Bible, so let's build it here without having full knowledge. What you find is now comes Ezra, Zerubbabel, and the likes of Nehemiah. So what do you think the, the Samaritans wanted? They wanted to help them build a temple. How could you build a temple? You don't even know God the way you should know God. So how did Ezra react? Ezra chapter 4, verse 2. You find in Ezra, it says, and Zerubbabel and, and 
Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the teachers of Israel said unto the Samaritans, You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. We ourselves together will build unto the Lord our God of Israel, as Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. And in the next verse, verse 3, they are very specific. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah, troubled them in building. They were against the very thought of anybody else because we rejected they look down at us. We're going to make trouble for them. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2 describes it. We have, don't have time, but let's look at Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10, and you get an idea in this passage. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard it, it grieved them. There's a mixed bunch of people with the Samaritans. It grieved them exceedingly. There was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. They tried their best to destroy this, but they did build. Thank God for Zerubbabel. Thank God for this man called Nehemiah. Thank God for Ezra. By the way, where did they come from? From Babylon. Remember the time when they had no land, but they had the law. They had the loyalty. They had the legacy. And they were seeking for the Messiah. So understand the history behind for us to recognize what takes place. Now they have come. And one of the things we must understand is when people came, there was a group of people called adherents to the law. There was, of course, the Samaritans. They were called the watchdogs or the keepers of the law in a different way. But this is the Pharisee says, let's take close to the law. And they were conservative, in a good way, fundamental. And when you look at them, they brought the nation back to the Lord. Now, having done that, they became a Brahmin class above and beyond. They wore special clothes. They need to be bowed down to. They took respect, but it was all simply all about them. They were harsh, judgmental, fundamentalist, conservative, and yet literally harsh against everyone. And they stretched the law to the farthest extent which they themselves could keep, could not keep, which they couldn't even lift with their little finger. They made it impossible for the common man, made law after law after law. Actually, when you read Matthew chapter 23, the greatest condemnation is to them. Woe unto you. They were good. They were conservative. They were fundamentalist. But they went what I call extreme right wing. Not balanced. So extreme they just hated everybody else. Contrary to them. Like the Alphalas today in Iran. And the Lord's condemnation was so strong, but somewhere in Matthew chapter 23, I believe it could be 36 or 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered my children together, my children the father's heart. Even as a hen gathereth the chickens under her wings, but you would not. You would not. John chapter, Luke chapter 17, 
I believe verse 47, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. You knew the word, but your interpretation was totally by your own way. Judgmental. I came seeking for mercy, but you came with judgment. And then he said, not one stone will be upon another. It was precise, direct. And now comes the third, and that is under Rome. So you find the Roman general Titus comes in, and there isn't a stone in the temple that he has not turned out. He removed all the gold, and for that gold, he completely destroyed the temple. And that was how we find for 2,000 years, until 1947, and in 1948 of May, Israel became a nation. I understand the evangelicals saying, it is total and complete. And of course, uh, Darby, John Darby brought this dispensation and saying, this is all you got to look for, Jesus coming in that generation. And Hanlon's day has written his book, and there's the left behind scene, made millions and millions people rich. But 1948, 40 years. No, we are 75 years. 75 years. They keep stretching. No, no, it is 50 years because of the 50th anniversary. No, it's 75 years. So where is that theology? It is now. Jesus is coming. That's the sign. Check it out. When you turn to Matthew chapter 24, you're going to find, I don't know whether it's 10, probably, I don't know, but the Lord Jesus Christ is telling you of the sign. And he says the fig tree. And when he says the fig tree, when the fig tree begins to bear fruit. So they've said, yes, the nation has born. No. That's the fig tree. But it hasn't borne fruit. When you look at the trees and the history of trees, particularly in Psalm 1, it tells you abiding in the word. It tells you close to the water. It abides and very close to the Lord, Psalm chapter 1. It's not there. There's a nation, all right, a military nation, depending on America, but yet not totally depend on Yahweh. When you look at it, there is a fig tree, but it has not blossomed. But it will come about one day. And then you know that's the last generation. Not until then. The nation of Israel has got a land, but yet not zealous for the law. Yet not zealous and loyal. In fact, it's like any other nation, just like America. As a large number on the top of who run the whole places just like Americans. It's a system you find just like America. A large number of them are deniers. In fact, Israel came about with people that were atheists. You talk about Ben Gurion, you talk about uh, the woman uh, Golda Meir, you talk about all of them. Maybe Menachem was one who was religious, but almost all of them comes from communist Russia and was simply, as Ben Gurion said, I'm a hardened Bolshevik. 
Bolshevik did not believe in God. So Israel comes about, and in a rather strange way, God allows it, but they haven't turned to God. And so what they're using is military strength with America's help. They haven't called on God. There isn't a David, there isn't a Hezekiah, there isn't a King Josephat type figure. They are extreme far right. Among them are groups that kill Christians or do not want Christians. So yes, God has promised the nation, the land, but the law must come. There must be a sense of loyalty, Yahweh, Adonai. There must come a crying out to God in repentance and praying when they're attacked, not depend on military strength. First, cry to God. But that is not there. There isn't the prophet says, Sub there, thus saith the Lord. But I want you to understand, God has not broken his promise, but he's waiting for Israel to come and to seek him. There will come a time when you read Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. It's going to be unique. Chapter 12, verse 1, go from say, Israel will be the center of conflict. But there in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, they will look unto him whom they have pierced and weep like one of their own sons. And they will cry unto the Lord. There's going to be such a resurgence that you're going to find that God is going to reach out. And you remember Ezekiel writing about this in chapter 47. They're dead dry bones. But the Spirit of God comes. They're still dead dry bones. But the Spirit of God comes and they're going to be a marching man. Oh, they're going to be powerful because they speak the things of God. We need to pray for the peace of Israel. We need to pray the Holy Spirit would move. And we need to pray that Israel will be in the zenith of all that God has promised. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and all the prophets. We need to pray in line, but not for a political solution, but for a prophetic solution. Can you say amen? Give the Lord a clap for me. Now, let me just say this. There was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, out of zeal, the Ashmonite king or the ruler, basically from the Maccabees, John Hyconah, went out and destroyed the temple that was in Ebel. Oh, that created a war. The zeal of people can create problems. That's basically not a zeal for God sometimes. It is, you see that in, in this Amalek. You see that in the Hamas. You see that in the IS. A false zeal, a fanaticism. That should not be in the Christian faith or within God's people of the Old Testament. You need to be zealous for the, God, for the Lord and the zeal of God's name and for his house must eat you, but not fanaticism. What you find in the horrible cancer that is Hamas and ISS is a fanaticism. Kill all people. But just because they do that, we don't have to do that. Trust in the Lord. Wait upon the Lord and do the right thing. And understand this, not everybody, but just center on what would be dangerous. What you're going to find when you go to the history the Sumerians now 
begin, and they were already estranged. They were already upset. They were jealous. They were upset seeing Israel growing up, and God began to move. So they began to do things that the Hamas is doing today, assassinate. So when pilgrims were going on their way, they would kill them. And there was enmity between the two. Do you understand enmity? History repeats itself. They hated Israel. They hated the temple. They hated the land. Israel is a land without a temple. Israel is a land without the priest. But they have the land. We need to pray that they would keep the law. That they would be loyal to God. That they would leave a legacy. Not in destroying life. But becoming that the nations of the world would be blessed. And then they would wait for their Messiah. Within Israel are good Orthodox people doing exactly that. They realize that Israel will become a full nation when the Messiah would come. Nothing else would replace. There are still strong, great people within Jewish faith that have such an ardent faith to the law, to the legacy, to the loyalty to God, and waiting for the Messiah. But of course, they will be surprised the Messiah they wait thinking is the first coming, actually is the second coming. But that's okay. I want you to realize, in the midst of war, in the midst of hatred, in the midst of division, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of hostility, let's read John chapter 4 and verse 4 once again. He must needs go to Samaria. Ah, crazy! Didn't you hear the history that just repeats itself? Jesus needs to go to Samaria. And off he goes to Samaria. In a time of tension, in a time of hostility, Jesus says, I have to go to Samaria. And what does he do? He reaches out to the people that were hated. The words that you could talk in the worst language, derogatory, Worse than a dog was the word Samaritan. It was a curse word. You can't even say that. The pious Jews were from, whether they were going from Galilee to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Galilee, it's a straight way as the crow flies. They can't go through that because this cursed Samaria is there. So they take round the way, cross the river Jordan twice, and take twice as much because they wouldn't be caught walking across Samaria. Jesus goes right in. The amazing thing is, forget about the extreme right view, destroy them. Jesus had disciples, just like some of the evangelicals. Destroy them. That was one of the conservative elected officials, just destroy them. What are you talking about? You said you're born again. You said you're spirit-filled. Destroy them. There was people in Jesus' band that said, if you take with me to Luke chapter 9 and verse 53, Jesus is got to go to Jerusalem because his heart, his face was as he would go. This is something the Samaritans don't like. You want to come in? Come in for us. But don't make this way to go to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They said, no, we don't want you. You're coming to us, you're fine. 
but you go through us just to go to Jerusalem, we have nothing to do with Jerusalem. So, antagonism. So, what does John and James do in verse 54? You find when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We do today. Not from heaven, but it does come from heaven. Consume them. This is John and James. They had to learn. There's a lot of people, not zealous, but they are fanatical because they are so close and attached to the culture, to nationalism, extreme. God wants to put us in the center. Not to the right extreme, not to the left extreme, but where do you stand? Neither left nor right. Stand upright as a person of God. So when you look at this, when his disciple John and Say said, let fire come down as Elisha. Elisha did that because the people were saying, you bored a dead man and crazy stuff. And he called for fire. But what does the Lord Jesus do in verse 55? He, he turned, he just turned around to James and John and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are. That's not my spirit. I have not come to destroy. I don't come to send fire from heaven. What type of spirit are you? And in verse 56, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. To save them. And he said, they don't want us here. Let's just go to the other town. Don't make a big noise. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. And that's what he's done. Coming to seek a Samaritan, number one. A woman, number two. A sinner, number three. She didn't come searching for Jesus as chapter three tells us of this good man named Nicodemus who comes at night. She didn't even think about Jesus. Have no clue about Jesus, but in a rap thinking, she does speak spiritual truth to some extent. We'll talk about it next Sunday, God willing. I want you to realize something very unique. Jesus makes, rather than pull them down derogatory, the Lord Jesus Christ is having a father's son. In fact, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 33, what he's talking about from what he saw. And he's saying, but a certain man, Samaritan, as he journeyed, came as he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. It's not about religion. It's not how zealous you are. It's not how many times you go to temple. It's there love in your heart. This Samaritan had. He saw a Jewish man knocked down, and he went and helped him. And he took him to a lodge and said, I'll pay for him, and I'll pay if there were more to do, but I want to take care of him. It is the heart. What is in your heart? When you look at Luke chapter 9, uh, Luke chapter 17 and verse 18, the Lord Jesus Christ healed 10 leprous people. But he picked up one person, and he is the only guy who happened to be a Samaritan. Are they not found that return to give glory except this stranger, the Samaritan? Jesus is asking. So in all the heart of Jesus, 
Yes, he should hate, because he is an Israeli. Yes, he should hate, because he's Jew. Yes, he should, because he's the son of David. He is the one that should come again, but not as the prince of faith, but as the prince of peace. So what you're going to find about the Lord Jesus is amazing. Let me just tell you something very unique. When you turn to chapter 4 of uh, John and verse 5, the mention of Jacob, and Jacob is mentioned. There comes a city which is called Sychar, a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son. Chapter 6, in the next verse, goes on to say, in the next verse, now Jacob's well was there. Again, the mention Jacob. And verse 12, the woman is asking a very strange question. Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. What is she talking about? There's a difference between Jewish and there's a difference between uh, Samaritan, but there's so much of commonality. There's so much of commonality. As humans, we have a lot of commonality. One of the things is I'll talk about next Sunday, God willing, we all thirst, we all hunger. Water doesn't matter where it comes from, it is water. Gold, no matter where it comes from, unless you say this is Muslim gold or Jewish gold or Christian gold, gold is gold. Education is for all people. Science is for all people. Technology is for all people. There are certain commonalities, but I want you to understand this. The mention of Jacob's well is mentioned. Where do you get this? It is from the Bible. She knows a part of it. When you read Genesis chapter 33, and what is very important in verse 19, you come across how Jacob brought a parcel of field where he spread his tent from the hand of Amor. And when you read Genesis chapter 48 and read uh, basically verse 22, you're going to find how, Joseph gave, how Jacob gave his son uh, you can read earlier to that, and he says, this is what I'm giving a potion to Joseph. So this is what the woman is alluding. Now again, when you turn to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 32, Joshua talks about it. Listen to what Joshua says, and the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, that's the land that Jacob brought, in a parcel of ground which Jacob brought from the sons of Homer, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver and became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. So here this woman knows a little bit of history. You ask the Muslims, they know a little bit of history, not all of it. You ask the people of Israel, salvation is of the Jews. And so when you look at it, there's a lot of commonality in certain things. Jacob's well, that is revered by Jews, Christians and Muslims. There's so much of commonality, but there's something I want you to understand. In both three passages, it talks about Jacob's well. It's like saying the water fountain. Do you know sometimes in offices a lot of people fall in love, waiting and drinking water, they casually talk. Hey, how are you? Where are you going? Yeah, I like you, you know that? Uh, she says, I like you also. And they get married. Am I saying somebody's secret history here? Okay. That is what I call Bible romance. 
around a well. Around a well. So if you were to take this passage in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 13, 14, 15, here is Abraham's servant, the chief steward, was told to find a bride for Isaac. So he stands at the well and he makes a prayer. Behold, I stand by the well of water and the daughters of men of the city come out to draw water. Verse 14. Goes on to say, and it come to pass that themselves whom I say, let down the pitcher, I pray that I may drink. She'll not only feed me, give me water, but also the ten camels. Oh, you're making it difficult for God. Verse 14, 15. And it came to pass. It just came to pass. Before he had done speaking, even before he could say, Amen. Behold, Rebekah came out who was born to Bethuel. Ah, oh, love around the well. But again, when you look at Genesis chapter 29, verse 9 and 10, Jacob and Rachel fell in love. You're going to find while yet he's, uh, sorry, yes, he spake with Rachel with her father's sheep. So this is Jacob now. And she kept them. And so here is Jacob falling in love in a well like Isaac met his wife through the servant in a well. Here is Jacob falling in love with Rachel. If that's not enough, Moses had to run out of Egypt and he made his way to the well. And when you read Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15, who you think he met? An Egyptian girl by the name of Zipporah. Now when Pharaoh heard this, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land, and he sat by a well. What happens in verse 16? Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Ah, came and drew water and filled the throats. Verse 17. And the shepherds came, but Moses stood up and helped them. And that's how Rachel goes to her father and says, this man that helped me, call him. And sure enough, they fell in love. So seems to be a Bible romance around the well. Listen to me, we don't have a well. So don't run around some old well and say the pastor said so. I did not say. We don't have a well. Okay. Why am I saying this? Because here is the Lord. God leaving heaven, making this long trip into a sin-sick earth, and Jesus becoming a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The divine Word became flesh. Now He says, I thirst. He said, I'm tired. And then in John chapter 19, verse 28, He's on the cross and He says, I thirst. As a man, he paid the price for a man. He paid the price for each one of us. But what I wanted to understand is blood is so powerful. There's something I wanted to know. Here is the bridegroom meeting a Gentile Samaritan woman. We're no better than the Samaritan. We are as sinful as the Samaritan woman. Jesus comes all the way to Jamaica, all the way to Queens Village, or wherever you are in Astoria, or wherever you are in Manhattan. He comes to you, and he's coming and not making any injustice. 
He is asking you commonality. I'll talk about Sunday. You are sinful. I mean, get your husband. Uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, what are you trying to say? You have five husbands, and the man you are sleeping with is not your husband. But not condemning. He says, give me water to drink. She says, how? How is it that you being a Jew can reach out to me and ask me for a... We're not allowed to. You're not allowed to drink water from the same... Well, what is so good, my friend, is when you go through the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and you see this in verse 31, and Paul is saying, I'm not speaking about the husband and wife, actually I'm speaking about Jesus, the bride, and the two shall be one. And listen to what he says in verse 32. He's, in the next verse, he goes on to say, I'm not talking about man and wife. He says, I'm talking about concerning Christ. And the church, excuse me? You were just talking about husband and wife. And Paul is saying, I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's yet to be Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. It is very powerful. It is the bride has made herself ready for her husband. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 9. Look at what it says. It says in that passage, this is marvelous. He says, the bride has made herself ready. Again, it says, adorned for a husband. Uh, let's read 22 and verse 9, Revelation 22. It says, see thou not. And it says, uh, and them which are saying, hmm, it may be verse 7. But it talks about the, yes, here it says, he showed me a few words. No, 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 we'll talk about later. It's talk, again, in chapter 20, you see about the bride for her husband, the lamb. It's marvelous. What I want you to understand is Christ comes down, and if you read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13 all the way to 14, but let's read verse 14. This is very important. What does he do? He breaks down the middle wall of partition. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm so sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 he breaks down the middle wall of partition and bringing us together that were once. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Forgive, they didn't have the notes. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, breaking down the middle wall of partition and bringing the two together. This is awesome. This is marvelous. That's what Jesus does. Coming down all the way from heaven, he comes to bring peace between man and God and peace with one another. That is so marvelous. I'm going to tell you the greatest love ever in the history of the universe is this passage, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. A young lad was asked, how much does your mom and dad love you? And he couldn't describe. He said, my mom and dad so much. That's what John is saying. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He came from heaven to earth becoming like us, the greatest journey. He broke into our Samaria, into our lives, and he gives us life so we would be joined and we would know his Father and we would get to say, Abba, Father.
So in just a moment, if you would stand with me. As you take this cup, I want to remind you what it reminds us. This is the cup of the Lord's covenant, of the New Testament shed in his own blood. This bread reminds us of the Lord's body, but it reminds every one of us that we have one body. It doesn't matter where you get the bread. It comes from anywhere in the world. Merged together, whether it's American or Russian, whether Israeli or Gazians or Samaria, that is the greatness of God. I want to remind you, my friend, Jesus comes to bring peace. And one of his disciples did exactly that. When you turn to Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, listen to what Philip does. He goes all the way to Samaria. And Acts chapter 8 and verse 8, there was great joy in Samaria. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26, the Spirit of God takes him to Gaza. And he comes across an utopian. Think about this. Breaking boundaries. Breaking the wall. And going into Samaria that is different from us. You'll be meeting many people. You have the truth on your side. They may not. But don't look down. You are a peacemaker. I'm going to be very frank. Whether you take Israel. Whether you take the Arabs. Whether you take anybody else in the world. is just blunt. He that hath not the Son hath not life. But he that the Son hath life. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God because of what Jesus did. What are you going to do? Build a wall or break the wall to go to Samaria? Israel has a right to this land. There's no question about it. No matter what people will do, I'm going to tell you this, my friend, the Father's business. He is the one in charge. He doesn't mean man's help, but he sent Jesus before the final day to bring peace. And who will go except you and me? As you take this cup, the bread, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 24, as often as you eat this bread, you do show for the Lord's death till he comes. He came, the word became flesh. He went to the cross, but he's going to come back again. Very few days or years, we don't know, but you and I should be ambassadors of Christ. We know what is right, and yet we must be willing to be like Jesus, to reach out to Samaritans with a love, of Jesus that the Samaritans the Bible says in 4 of John and 39 not only the women but that whole village came to the Lord thank God for Jesus thank God for you evangelist thank God for you people who take the word outside of your own culture outside of your own race outside of everything else even though you have the word on your side you're willing to ask someone else can I have water to drink? Let's just make conversation. Because God has made this conversation with us through Jesus. And he broke it for us. As you break this bread, 
That's what God did. His heart was broken. Let us eat it in the name of Jesus. The blood was spilled for the Jews and the Gentiles, for the men and the women, for the Garsons and the Samaritans, for the Americans and the Africans, for the Hispanics and the Caribbeans. Every one of us, the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Thank God for Jesus. Never look down on what Jesus did on the cross. Let us take it and say, thank you, Father, for one who broke the boundaries and searched me out. I wasn't searching. But as he came to the woman of Samaria, he came into my life. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Let's drink it in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.